This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Now, I have been given the topic for our second message entitled, True Godliness, Contentment's Companion. In our first session, we looked at how our souls long for satisfaction and how true contentment can only be found in Christ Jesus. We talked about the sovereignty of God, His reign and rule over this universe, right on down to our own lives, and about embracing our part in His story, rather than trying to get Him to work in our story that we're trying to create. So when Jake asked me to talk, on true godliness, contentment's companion, let's think about those two words, godliness and contentment. Godliness, I believe, is is looking, thinking, acting more and more like the one we serve, more and more like him. We become more and more God-like in our responses. And contentment, we've talked about that a little bit. It's satisfaction, it's serenity, it's being at rest, that soul rest we talked about in our last time together. These two do go hand in hand, godliness and contentment. I've never known a godly woman who was continually anxious, worried, overwhelmed by the details of life. And neither... Have I ever met a truly contented woman who wasn't walking very closely with her God? So let's think about how these two qualities, godliness and contentment, grow together in the woman who is following Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a verse from John chapter 3, verse 30 as my main text, but I'd like to read the paragraph surrounding it in order for you to see where we are. We're with John the Baptist in John chapter 3. This is an amazing insight into John the Baptist's heart and ministry. Starting at verse 26. John chapter 3, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, these are John's disciples, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that's Jesus, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And here's our verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Let's think about that for a minute. Godliness means thinking more about God's fame, God's glory, God's recognition than my own. 
John's disciples in verse 26 said, they're all, they're all going to Jesus. And verse 27, John says, but it's not about me, it's about him. He must increase and I must decrease. John was talking about what I would call God magnification, if I could put it that way. How does God increase in our hearts and lives so that contentment becomes our companion? Well, first of all, let me begin this way. I think it's important for us to understand God's economy because it's so different from our own. We need to learn to see the world and how we live toward God and each other from His perspective. We need to meditate on how God runs things, what He counts as valuable. His economy is opposite of what we think. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, put it this way. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think with me just quickly through some of the ways God's economy is so opposite to the way we think. God tells us, the more you give, the more you receive. <laughs> That's crazy. Acts 20, verse 35 says, Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Or Luke 6, 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. In God's economy, the more you give, the more you receive. Or, the more you humble yourself, the more you will be exalted. That doesn't make sense in our world, does it? We're always checking to see how many likes we have on our Instagram posts and Facebook. And, you know, we want to be liked. Jesus says, it's in humbling that you'll find true, true you'll truly be exalted. Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12 say, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or another turnaround in God's economy says that the more dependent you are, the more productive you become. John 15.5 gives us that picture of Jesus being the vine, and we're the branches grafted into him. Whoever abides in him, dependent on him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Let's, let's think of one more. We have time for one more. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. The weaker you are, the more powerful you will grow. That's crazy. But 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 puts it this way. But he said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Go figure. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. 
There's our word. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weaknesses take away our strength. Insults take away our reputations. Hardships take away our physical comforts. Persecutions take away our authority. Calamities, they take away our security, our dreams, our futures. And what do we have left? Jesus. And he becomes enough. Psalm 62, 1. My soul finds rest in God alone. Not my strength or my reputation or my comforts or my authority or my security. If all I ever have is Jesus Christ, then I am of all women most rich, most loved, most strong, because Christ's power is perfected in weak women. It's this vision of Christ that will make him bigger, that will magnify him to us and help us understand and embrace how God works in our hearts to build contentment. If God's redeeming love is truly filling your heart, then God himself will be the ultimate human experience. Not a perfect job or reputation or marriage or children or anything that we've talked about so far tonight. So we need to understand God's economy. And then let me say this. I believe we need to learn how to magnify the Lord personally. That will help us be content in him. I'm sure most of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a beautiful illustration in Prince Caspian when Lucy meets with Aslan about God being magnified. Will you hang in here while I read a paragraph to you? Uh, Lucy is separated from the others, and she's been going through a, a, a woods where the trees are dancing, and she gets caught up and dances with them. She stepped out from among their shifting confusion of lovely light and shadows. A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes with dark trees dancing all around it. And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion, but Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment, and the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face into that beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger 
That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, Aslan? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That is God, magnification. C.S. Lewis, I love that. You see, as we grow in God, he does become bigger to us. Now, how do we grow? The verse I'm meditating on these months is from Colossians 1.10, and the last phrase says, increasing in the knowledge of God. How do we grow in our knowledge of him? Well, we need to examine the word that speaks of him, this bread that he gives us to eat and take in, to learn about him. We need to become like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says this, Now these Bereans were more noble. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says this, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, we're to long for, to, to desire the pure spiritual milk. Think of a little baby. They are going to eat no matter what, aren't they? They're going to let you know that they're hungry. We ought to have that kind of desire. I'm crying for more, Lord. I need more. I know it's just two hours since you fed me last, but I need more for this situation. More, please. We ought to have that kind of desire for the pure spiritual milk. Now, what is the pure spiritual milk? The, the emphasis here is not that the teaching should be elementary, childish, like the milk of 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, where Paul says, I had to feed you, you know, with baby food because you weren't mature. No, that's not it. He's talking about pure spiritual food, the Bible the sacraments, the preaching of the word, the fellowship of the saints, service, whatever nourishes spiritual growth. The emphasis here is that it should be pure and nourishing. And we should desire it like newborn infants. That's all they know how to ask for. More milk. If a baby isn't eating, he won't grow. Lack of appetite signals lack of health. Our first grandbaby was a little girl named Kate. Well, she still, she is a little girl named Kate. <laughs> and she was born in Scotland where our oldest boy was doing his doctorate. And uh, I was asked to come and help and I was delighted to. She was two days old and home from the hospital, but she wasn't nursing very well. Now, Eric and Aaron just thought that she was a good baby. They were blessed with a quiet baby. But Mamie knew that a newborn should not go four hours between feedings and then stretch it to five. So I asked Aaron, I told her, I said, you know, I'm a little worried about this, and here's why. And that dear daughter-in-law said, well, Mom, let's call the doctor. And sure enough, at four days, Kate had not gained any weight yet. And they put her back in the hospital for a day or two to get Erin's milk supply up. And the reason was she didn't have enough milk 
to give her energy to cry for more milk. Once she started drinking and getting energy, she had energy to cry. So my suggestion for you is, if you are bored or indifferent right now with the Word of God, please don't let that be a barrier. Dig in. Find a psalm. Find some place to start. Find a friend and tell them it's hard for you to be in the Word daily. And ask her to hold you accountable. But get in there because the more you drink, the more you'll want. You see, what, ask yourself this question. What do you need to forfeit in order to hunger for more of the sweet milk of God? It's personal. I don't know what it'll be in your life. God wants healthy children, and he knows what it takes to make each one of us his healthy daughter. But God is offering me a choice. He's offering you a choice. Not between necessarily God and the world out there. God is offering me a choice between God and Janny. God and my busy schedule. God in my demanding job, God in that needy relationship, God in my wonderful children, God in my darling grandchildren, God in my hurt feelings and resentments. Whom will I choose? Whom will you choose? Anything that diminishes Christ and his kingdom work exalts me. Ask yourself tonight, Lord, how, how can I magnify you more in my own life? How can you grow bigger to me so that I can say with John the Baptist, you must increase? Also, not only magnify the Lord personally and understand his economy, but magnify him with others. Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. To magnify means to enlarge, to intensify, to expand, to amplify, to stretch, to acclaim, to praise, to adore. We get to do that. We just did it tonight. Wasn't it wonderful singing? Oh, I wish you could hear it from up where Sherry and I and Bethany, we were, we were sitting up here. It's wonderful to hear you all sing. Magnify the Lord with me in your worship services, at your conferences, in your community groups. Listen to how he's working in other people's lives. In your Bible studies, you learn more about him and you grow bigger. He grows bigger to you as you learn that. One-on-one -on -one as you're sharing what he's doing in your life. Magnify him with your friends. We talk of him. His name is always close to our tongue because it's so near to our hearts. You see, he increases when we understand God's economy, when we seek to magnify him personally, and then when we seek to magnify him in community. Now let's come to that second phrase. He must increase. God magnification. But what about us? <laughs> I must decrease. Demagnification, so to speak. How do we magnify ourselves before the Lord? You see, for me, I, I don't know about you, for me, the battle is so much, is, it, it shows up in odd ways. It's, it's not like I get up in the morning and I say, 
I'm going to live for my own glory today. I'm just going to see how glorious I can be and how everybody can think, oh, that Janie, she's just glorious. I don't get up that way. It rather, it shows up in anxiety, discouragement, sometimes withdrawing or isolation, sometimes embarrassment that I dwell on, self-absorption. Where is anxiety or discouragement in my life the fruit of living for my own glory? Our son Gavin is a pastor in California. He wrote this in one of his blog posts. Do I care more about how I am viewed or about how God is viewed? I need to ask myself this before every conversation, every email, every time I speak, every blog post I write, every meeting I attend. When I ask myself this, do I care more about how I am viewed or about how God is viewed? I'm able to see, when I ask myself that question, I'm able to see various ways in which the roots of pride and idolatry, of self-magnification, have not been dug up enough in my heart. You see, salvation is not emptying ourselves only at the point of conversion to our own contributions to find favor with God. That same posture of faith, it's all you, Jesus. I can't bring anything here to justify myself before you. That same posture of bowing before the cross is the key to following Christ each day. At least it is for me. I wonder if it will be for you as well. Each moment of faith means bowing before the cross. You died for the sin of self-magnification, Lord and recognizing that Jesus plus nothing is not only the formula for my salvation, it's also the formula for my life, for true ministry, for Christian marriage, for God-blessed work, for everything. That way he gets the glory. Let me take a few minutes. I have a few minutes to do this. And think with me about Peter. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I just love him. Let's just walk through his life a little bit tonight and see how he changed from someone who magnified himself to someone who magnified Jesus. He wrote in 1 Peter 5, 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with all humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Who is the man who wrote those words? He learned to magnify God. He was willing to become small for God's sake. How did he do it? Well, we know he was with Christ from the beginning. He was one of the first to be called. He was a fisherman. We knew that. We know he was impetuous. Remember when the winds and waves were beating against the boat and the disciples saw Jesus coming across the Sea of Galilee toward them and they were all afraid and Peter shouted out, Is it you? And Jesus says it is. And Peter jumps out into the water and then he looks around and is terrified and starts to sink. Lord, save me. He had to cry out. Jesus reached out his hand. He was impetuous. 
Many of his conversations with Christ were recorded in the Bible. Matthew 16 holds two conversations that are so interesting. In verses 16 through 17, uh, Peter declares to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. My, my Father in heaven told you that. You're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Then a very few verses later, as Jesus is talking about his death, the cross that would be coming, and Peter says, he kind of rebukes Jesus. He says, not the cross. You know what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. One time, revelation from God, a few minutes later, the words of Satan, that's Peter. That's us. In Matthew 26, Jesus foretells Peter's denial of him, and, and Peter can't believe it. And maybe that's why he drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear, the high, um, the high priest's servant's ear. But then, a few minutes later, he's cursing and swearing that he did not know Jesus before two little servant girls. Well, we see him running to the tomb. It's interesting to me that he and John are running. John gets there first, but Peter's the one that charges in. He's the one that goes right in and sees the cloth there. Then we see him at the Ascension and Pentecost. There is such a radical change in impetuous Peter. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches in Acts chapter 2, and what a sermon. 3,000 people come to faith that day. He heals the lame beggar. He preaches again in, in chapter 3. And then Peter, along with John, they're both arrested only weeks after Jesus' death. But the Bible does record there in Acts chapter 4 that from the talk where they were taken and arrested from, over 5,000 had come to faith. So Peter was bold. He was a good preacher. Oh, my. When he was brought before the rulers of the day and the judges in Acts chapter 4, Peter addresses them, and they are astonished. They say, who is this man? He's uneducated, yet he speaks so well. He's out of prison now. He's been arrested this one time, and uh, he's out of prison in Acts chapter 5, and we read about multitudes of men and women are being added to the Lord so that they even carried the sick to Peter because they thought that his shadow, if it fell on them, would heal them. That's how much the Spirit was alive in Peter and how people were drawn to him. Then he's arrested again because of all the crowds and chaos. But during the night, you know the story, the angel comes and takes him out and he goes, he's told to go stand in the, the temple and speak to all the people. He was brought before the authorities again. They wanted to kill him, but Gamaliel saved his life. And they told him, Peter, you may not talk about God. Do not talk about Jesus. And he said, I have to obey God rather than you. Throughout the book of Acts, we see him doing miracles. He healed 
uh, Aeneas, who had been paralyzed for eight years, he raised Lydda, uh, Dorcas to life in Joppa. Then, in Acts chapter 12, very interesting, we see that Herod kills James, the brother of John. Now, it was Peter, James, and John, you know, in the beginning of, of their time with Jesus. They were threesome. James is the brother of John, and Herod kills James, and he sees that the people are pleased. So he arrested Peter. This is his third arrest, and it's not that long that Jesus has been ascended. There was that miraculous you Sunday school teachers know these stories, but I just want to review that, that miraculous exit. He'd been chained between two guards, and the angel opened the doors, and, uh, you know, the Bible says those guards were executed the next day, but the angel just let him right out. Mm. Herod starts searching for him. Acts 15, we see him at the Jerusalem Council. And that's the last we hear of Peter. Then we come to 1 Peter 1. 1, And what does he call himself? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, a former fisherman with a propensity for saying the wrong thing. He lacked any formal training in the scriptures. This is the Peter who wrote 1 and 2 Peter. Wonderful books. Some of my favorite it appears from secular history that he traveled with his wife throughout Asia, planting churches and establishing groups of believers. Between 62 and 64 AD, there was great persecution. He went to Rome. We're not really sure why. We aren't told why. Now, this, we're now coming to 30 years after Pentecost. So Christ has been risen for 30 years. Peter's been doing all this, planting churches, preaching, writing. And in those years from 63 AD to 69 AD, many Christians were killed. You've read about the Christians meeting in the catacombs of Rome. Many of them were killed. Both Peter and Paul were killed during those years in that persecution. God had called Peter and changed him and used him to write this part of Holy Scripture. We're going to use one of his verses tomorrow in my final message. He was a well-known apostle and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I find great comfort in Peter. Jesus called him a rock when he was so flaky. He was rash. He was governed by his passions. He was an emotional mess like Janney is sometimes. One minute he's defending his Savior before a Roman cohort with his sword, and the next time we see him, he's running in fear from a young girl's questions. But Christ, Jesus, sees the finished product. Christ doesn't see Peter as he was then. He saw what he was becoming because of loving Jesus. And that's how he sees us. He doesn't choose us on the basis of what we are, but on what we will become through his work in our lives. He increases in and through us, and he becomes bigger, and we, in a sense, decrease. First Peter was written about 30 years after Christ was crucified. 
take a minute, not all, not all of you are 30 years old, but if you're 30 or older, take a minute and just think back 30 years from today. Think of all that God has done in your life. Oh, praise God. You see, it's not who we are when we come to Christ, but what we are becoming because of his growing bigger in us. Let me illustrate it this way. Gutzen Burglum was the sculptor responsible for the stone sculptures of the four presidents at Mount Rushmore. His housekeeper was quite a fan of his. She was taken to the site before the work began. And then he brought her back after it was completed. When she saw his finished work, this is what she said. Oh, sir, how did you know Mr. Lincoln was in that rock? <laughs> That's the way Jesus looks at me. That's the way he looks at you. He's our sculptor. He sees his own image in us. We may feel rough and ugly and nothing to look at at all, but Christ is chipping away, polishing. He's revealing more of himself, transforming us into his image from one degree of glory to another so that he can increase in me and through me, in you and through you. He isn't finished yet, so let's be patient with ourselves. Let's be content with what he's doing with us. What will you be one year from now? What will I be? Only the Lord knows. What will you be 10 years from now, 30 years from now, when Jesus is finished with you, with me? It's not who we are, but what we are becoming because of Jesus. Now let me finish with my final point about real contentment. Let me just make a few comments about what contentment isn't. We, we talked about this in my first message. Discontentment says, God, somehow, you know, I, I'm just not feeling you in this situation. You're really not enough for me here. I need something more from you. For me to be happy, I, I need you to be more, whatever, you fill it in, generous, kind, rewarding, understanding. Our life isn't fun enough or good enough. God isn't answering our prayers in the way we want them to. And that doesn't always just apply to material possessions. It can also apply to things like intelligence, family connections, energy levels. It can apply to invitations to events or control over the lives of our grown children or musical talent or career recognition or influence or power or beauty, you name it. The list is endless. Now, we've already said desire is not our problem. God made us for desire. He made us to long after, to yearn for, to stretch out for great eternal things. But God loves us by helping us see that as long as we're seeking our happiness in things or people or circumstances, we'll never find real satisfaction. Things break. People disappoint. Circumstances inevitably change. And so he, won, he warns us not to hunger after those things. 
When I'm not content, I need to ask myself, what is it about God that I don't understand in this situation? Why isn't God enough for me here? For two years, my, my focus of contentment, hard as I tried to make it the Lord, was a car. It was those years we lived in Scotland and we had to sell our car. For two years, as I walked back and forth to our village for food and medicine and tried to get the four kids to church because Ray helped serve there and I, he had to go early, or took a bus into Aberdeen for clothing for the children, I walked and walked and walked. I coveted a car. I made a deal with God. Lord, if you give us a car, I will be so happy. Well, two years later, when we returned to America, he did. Through our generous parents, they gave us a car. And you know, I was happy for a little bit. It was um, a Chevy Impala sports coupe, which seated, it, there were six seat belts in it, but the sixth seat was the armrest between the driver and the shotgun that came down like that, you know, with no back. And our oldest boy grew quickly. He was six feet at about 10 years old, and it was hard for him to fit in there. And sure enough, very soon, not only was I not happy with the car, I was longing for another car. I was not content. Now, what I really thought would make me content was, of course, a minivan. Eventually, we were able to get one, and we all fit so nicely into it. By, but by then, I was a suburban soccer mom with a full-time job teaching second grade and four kids to carpool around, plus Ray's job in ministry at Trinity Seminary. Was I happy with our minivan? No. I wanted a second car so we wouldn't have to carpool around every day like this. Any car would do, Lord. It doesn't have to be another minivan. Just any car to get ready to work, and then, I promise you, I will be truly happy. <laughs> now, was it wrong for me to ask for a car? No. It wasn't wrong for me to want a car. Was it wrong for me to desire a second car? Not necessarily. That wasn't a sin necessarily. But the desire had begun to overrule my heart. Desire itself was not the problem. My problem was misplaced desire. Examining our discontentment takes us right down to the deepest interior of our beings, which I began our evening talking about, to see where our desires are really focused. Discontentment is a signal from our Heavenly Father that all is not well in my relationship with him. You see, God was not enough for me. The problem was my misplaced desire. I wasted so much spiritual energy. And dear sister, we have a limited amount of spiritual energy. Let's not waste it on discontentment. Boy, I had to learn the hard way. You see, the root of my discontentment was my distrust of God's providence for our family. What does my life consist of, after all? When I peel away the layers of niceness and social charms and makeup and the care to make a good impression, what occupies my heart and mind and soul? What do I daydream about? What do I plan for? What do I rejoice over? There? over? That brings us back 
to what we talked about. Treasuring Christ. Let's not be women who stifle our desires. Let's be women who are awake to our godly desires and ask him to increase those, to feed those. What do I really want in life and death? Is Jesus Christ in all his love and glory and grace enough for me? Remember, God knows our hearts. He created them. He, he, he can do the impossible. He can change our discontented hearts so that we trust him with all our lives, every detail right down to what occupies the desire setting in them. He's in the business of transforming self-centered, self-serving, anxious, worried women into ladies who honor Christ, who want to serve him, who trust him. God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, can fill our hearts with so much love for Jesus that I am truly content. And you can be too. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or Philippians 4.11, Sherry and I were talking about this over dinner. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. You never know what goodness God is going to pour out on you. Maybe he will provide that car you need, like in my situation. Or maybe he'll give you enough grace to live faithfully without one. Maybe he will heal your loved one. Or maybe he will comfort you in your loss in ways you never thought possible this side of heaven. Maybe he will answer your prayer just as you thought he should, but maybe he will give you grace in ways so rewarding that looking back on them, you will praise him even for that unanswered prayer. This is a radical approach to life. You'll only find it in the Bible Paul had to learn it. If he had to learn it, we certainly do. I have learned, remember Philippians 4, in whatever situation I am to be content, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is a learned behavior. Now, what does contentment mean? And I'll close with this. It does not mean folding your hands and acquiescing to difficult situations that truly need to be improved. That is not contentment. But there is a sense, I believe, in which by God's grace we can be content in a situation while not being content with it. Let me give you some examples. I can learn to be content in my job while not being content with it. Contentment does not mean that I will never change jobs, but it does mean I will cast my cares on Jesus, choosing to trust his goodness and letting his peace rule in my heart while he keeps me there. I can learn to be content in my home while not being content with it. It's not wrong to redecorate or want to improve my home, but it does mean I'll not let this become the focus of my heart until my house is picture perfect, which it never will be. For those of us who are married, I can learn to be content in my marriage while not being content with it. I always want to go deeper with Ray, loving and supporting him more today than I did yesterday. I want to discover new, fun ways to flirt with him. I want our older years to be more fun 
than our early ones. I can learn to be content in my physical limitations right now as my body ages, while not being content with them as I strive to take care of myself and exercise and eat healthily so that I can be as strong as possible for as long as possible. Contentment is a learned grace. I don't know where you need to learn it tonight. Jesus does. He will help you. You see, we can't just decide one day that we'll never be discontent again. Let's fill our hearts with the goodness of God. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That doesn't mean perfectly. I picture it as looking to him. I'm going to walk. I'm not going to look down at my circumstances. I'm going to walk uprightly. I'm going to look up right up to you, Lord, and I'm going to let you give me what you want me to have in this, and I'm going to trust you with it because I want to be godly, and I want contentment to be my faithful companion. Let me pray for us, and we'll close. Oh, Lord, I pray for each one of us tonight, myself included. We do want to go deeper with you, and we thank you for that, because that only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Help us. Help each woman here to say, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease, and I want that. So help me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.